This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. My guest today, the multi-award-winning lyricist Deborah Gussin, discovered her passion for music at the age of 12 when her mom took her to her first Broadway musical, her sister took her to her first concert, and all that music took her to another universe altogether. Though her career would first lead Deborah on a journey through television, music was always along for the ride. After working on the Mickey Rourke film, Year of the Dragon, she landed at ABC's Wide World of Sports, that compelling show involving the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, taught Deborah the ingredients of how to tell a compelling story. Deborah continued her TV career in Los Angeles, working on numerous programs, including the Daytime Emmy Awards, Fox Sports News, Wolfgang Puck, and Dr. Phil. While working on the launch of the National Geographic Channel, one of Deborah's colleagues introduced her to renowned lyricist Marty Panzer, whose songs have been sung by Barry Manilow, Barbara Streisand, and many others. That life-changing moment unexpectedly launched her into the world of songwriting. After winning the Concord Records and Barry Manilow Songwriting Scholarship four times, Deborah focused her energies on songwriting full-time. She has since gone on to win 40 international songwriting contests, including the Grand Prize and Lennon Award in the prestigious John Lennon Song Contest. Her songs have been heard on NPR radio and have been featured on numerous TV shows. Deborah was named Best Lyricist at the 2016 and 2017 Hollywood Music and Media Awards. That was the first time that that group ever honored a lyricist. She recently wrote rock songs with Weezer's Brian Bell for his band, The Relationship, and continues to focus on writing songs for the pop, adult contemporary, country, and dance markets. So it gives me great joy to welcome my longtime friend, Deborah Gusson, to StoryBeat today. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. I'm honored to uh, be among the esteemed people that you speak with. <laughs> well, believe me, the honor is all mine. So <laughs> I know that you've been a music lover since you were a little girl, that's for sure. What right. kind of music first inspired you? I know we said in the intro here that you had been inspired by going to Broadway shows and concerts, but what kind of music inspired you? You know, I grew up in the heyday of singer-songwriter um, the singer-songwriters like Carole King and, um, if you call him a singer-songwriter, Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel and right. Barry Manilow. And um, that 70s was a real uh, lush uh, pot of musical ingredients for me Indeed. Uh, in terms of storytelling and, uh, and musicality. People like James Taylor, did you like? Uh, yes, absolutely. Great. Carol King, all those folks were, were yeah. in, in your uh, wheelhouse, so to speak. Yes. And, and so many artists like that, singer-songwriters, um, think of music as a calling. Do you think of music as a calling for you? Well, my, my expertise is more lyrical than musical, although I do, you know, when I'm in a co-write in person, I do sing what I'm hearing. Um, but I, I do try to collaborate with people who have more of an expertise in melody than I do. Um, but I don't know that I look at it as a calling. I mean, I've had another calling in my life as a television producer, mm -hmm. so I think there could be more than one calling. I think creativity is a, is a calling, and um, sometimes I, I would put it into producing TV, and sometimes I would put it into songwriting, so maybe that's a little more accurate. Were you, were you writing songs while you were working in TV? For a little while. Um, I had never had any aspiration to write songs. Um, my writing growing up was a little poetic, but I never considered myself a poet or sat down and write, wrote poetry. Mm -hmm. um, I 
just, you know, people would ask me to write things for eulogies and things like that. <laughs> eulogies. Um, but I, I never really sat and considered myself a poet. It wasn't until I met Marty Panzer and I started, I took his master class in lyric writing mm -hmm. that he saw something in me that I, I did not know about. And it was, it was 100% him being uh, very encouraging over the years that I ended up becoming a lyricist because it, I was just kind of doing it for fun when I first took his master class. Has, you, has he ever told you what specific thing he saw in you? Yes. Uh, you know, he says, he says I, I always knew you were smart, but I didn't know at first whether or not you could get down to the heart. And um, he said, as I've seen you grow as a lyricist, uh, I have seen that you absolutely can do that. And so I think that to him, and the way he writes as well, is just right inside the heart. And, um, and I don't know if I've inherited that in a way from him, from listening to his music as I grew up, uh, or whether or not I just had that in me as well. It's probably some of both. So, so when you first started out, you were writing more mechanically? Is that what you mean? Um, I was trying to figure out what a verse and a chorus was when I very first started uh, <laughs> to take his class. Like I said, I took the class more because of my interest in the songs that I grew up that he wrote for Barry Manilow, which I, who I was a fan of most of my life. And um, I just was a fan of his writing. And I didn't take the class because I wanted to be a songwriter. If I wanted to be a songwriter, I would have started in a beginner's class, in right. Songwriting 101. His was a master class with people that were very experienced in writing, especially my first year when I took it. Everybody was extreme, was very good. So, and so I didn't even know how to write a verse or a chorus. It so, took me quite a while to figure out the technical part of it. And you got to take this class because he had you'd met him and he saw something in you. I took the class. I had met him uh, right before nine eleven mm -hmm. uh, through a mutual friend that I worked with who found out I liked Barry Manilow and he asked me if I knew who Marty Panzer was and of course I did and so he got us all together for dinner. And uh, I remember uh, the dinner went on and closed the restaurant, and for another three hours we were all standing outside laughing wow. because he was the funniest person I'd ever heard. And I thought, gee, isn't this interesting? I'm never going to see this guy again, and yet he made me laugh more than anybody ever has. And a year later, a friend of mine was looking at the UCLA catalog and mentioned that guy I had dinner with was teaching his class in songwriting and huh. in lyric writing. And I thought, well, I don't write songs, so <laughs> why are you telling me this? Um, and then 9-11 hit, and his class was taught in January, so uh, the whole kind of country, especially New Yorkers, were very down, and I thought, you know, I could use a good laugh. Maybe I'll take his, his class, and at least I'll laugh and learn something about the songs I grew up with. And that was my only agenda. That's very interesting, that it, you sort of fell into it without looking to do it. Completely. That, and, and do you feel that once you found it, was there... Let me put it this way. Did you, was there a moment where you went, wow, this really is for me? Uh, to this day, I wonder what I'm doing. <laughs> um, it, but I, it feels like the very first time I tried to sit down and write a lyric, um, I, was, I remember saying to somebody in the class, I didn't know Marty was standing behind me. It was after the class was over. And I said, boy, this must be easy for him, but I'm finding this so hard. And he heard what I said, and he said, this is not easy, even for me, even after all these years. And now that I'm many years into it, uh, it really doesn't get any easier for me. Uh, some people might be gifted at it, and it might roll off their tongue, but I have to work very hard at it, and I'm a big rewriter. Well, it's, I've been writing for a long time in my life, including, as you well know, a number of lyrics, but I've not been uh, in the lyric writing mode for some time, and any kind of writing is extremely difficult, any kind, mm -hmm. even for high-end professionals. Um, but lyric writing is especially challenging. Why do you think that is? What makes lyric writing so hard? Well, a story writer can sit down and write a story and compose a story in their head and just tap, tap, tap on the keyboard and, and pull out a story. But a lyricist has to write that same story in, you know, a certain number of, a very few number of words, and they all have to rhyme, and they have to have internal rhymes if you really want to do that. And... Um, then it, ha then it has to go to a chorus that makes sense coming into and out of again by telling a whole different story or progressing the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more you know, you know, when I first started out, I was just trying to figure out how to write a lyric. 
but the more I, I studied and uh, learned about the industry and what was demanded of professional ly- lyricists, uh, the more I, I edit myself along the way, which they say you're not supposed to do. They say, just write it all down and come back to it later. Right. Um, but I think, oh, that's not good enough, or that, that can be better, or that needs to be stronger. And so I have to remind myself to just put it all down on paper and then come back to it and see what out. Well, because one of the things that uh, we teach as uh, in writing classes is that you do get it all down as much as you can, as quickly as you can, and that the the part of the art of it is coming back and rewriting. I assume right. you, you do a lot of rewriting, yes? Yes, yes. I'm a big believer in rewriting. Um, and, you know, in a lot of various workshops that I take and, and things that I'm exposed to, um, especially down in Nashville, you know, they, it's about being fast and about writing as much as you can and quantity, obviously quality too, but I, you know, I prefer to focus on the quality, and I'll rewrite a few songs over the course of time. Somebody else can write, you know, 50 songs, but maybe only a few of those songs are, are high quality. And, um, you know, I don't think you can write 500 songs a year, and they can all be Great, oh. but I could write five great songs a year if I keep rewriting them. Yeah, sure, I, I, I think that it's, I think that there are plenty of writers, both songwriters and writers of other kinds, uh, that write lots of stuff that doesn't work, and they're just looking for that one nugget in there, um, right. or one or two or three nuggets. Hopefully, um, I, I can tell you from my own experience that's true for one of my former partners that wrote a lot of stuff that just wasn't going anywhere, but was looking for that little truffle in the dirt, you know? Um, and it, it, it is a challenge to figure out what does work. Do you know when you've written something, do you feel it that it, this works? Can you, how do you know? Well, that's why I continue to take workshops because I do like the opinion of, other professional writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they give me uh, a direction. They tell me if something is a little too cliche. Um, and when I'm too close to it, especially if I don't take you know, breaks in between and, or if I have a deadline and I have to write something quickly, uh, I get too close to it. And unless I put it away for a while and come back to it with fresh eyes, those fresh eyes would come in the form of other writers mm-hmm. who can look at it. Because I can look at somebody's lyric and tell them all the things that they can do to improve it. But when it comes to my own, if I'm in the middle of writing it, uh, you lose that perspective. You, so you, I do enjoy um, having other professional writers uh, give me that perspective. I think that's, that is a, a, a great way to look at things. It's always helpful to have, especially people that know what they're doing, give you feedback. Mm. Because you do sometimes lose sight of the forest for the trees, that old cliché. But right. uh, and and it's certainly going to be as true in lyric writing or any kind of music writing as it would be in any any kind of writing. Um, aside from doing you know writing, hopefully a lot. Are there other things that you've done in your life to develop your writing talents? Is there do, do you read poetry? Do you do do other kinds of things? I know I should, but I I don't do things for the purpose of developing the writing. Uh, if I am trying to write an idea that I have or that has come to me, I might then do some research for maybe some keywords mm-hmm. that would work. Like, let's say if I decide I want to write a Christmas song, you know, it might be smart to put in some keywords that uh, we all relate to uh, that are Christmassy. Can you think of... The gifts, the, you know, those might be some keywords that while they're in a million other Christmas songs, you've got to think of a different angle uh, mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. But um, that's got to yeah. be especially tough to come up with a new Christmas song because there are so many of them. Yeah, and that's that a Christmas song. They they say you should have a Christmas song and a summer song in your catalog, and those are two that I'm I keep uh, jotting down ideas for, but I haven't gone ahead and written yet. Do Do you find yourself writing mostly words first? In terms of writing lyrics before a melody, yes. Uh, I wouldn't say mostly. I I. I Depending upon the circumstance, I write in all different ways. If I'm, you know, in a workshop and it's for writing a lyric, then I would write the lyric first. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a good way for me to perfect the lyric, but I've worked with artists who prefer to write the melody first or have written a melody and their, their lyrics aren't very strong, and so they ask me to, to, to remove all their lyrics and just come up with a whole fresh lyric for their, for their melody. I've worked with people that in the same room were developing it together, um, in that case, I usually go back later and try to make the, some of the lyrics even stronger if I can. Sure. Um, 
sometimes ideas come to me in the middle of the night, late at night, and uh, that might not be when I'm in the middle of a writing session, so uh, I always try to leave a little room for that. Um, and sometimes I, I, it's, it's always, there's no one way that I write. And I specifically got, made sure I was trained to, to do always because in the beginning I was only trained to write a lyric first uh, for many years. And then I thought, well, that might not be the opportunity that comes up. I need to be trained for any potential opportunity that comes up. So um, eventually I ended up doing it all different ways. It's so interesting because my first and long-time uh, training or work, as you might call it, was with, as you well know, Frank Wildhorn, and uh, there was almost never a word first. It was always music first, and that's what drove everything. And sometimes that not only drove the music, but drove me crazy because uh, it didn't always work well that way. But uh, but that was how we did it. And so, there, as you well know, there are lots of different ways to come at it. And I think it's great that you have spent time um, developing your craft to go in many different directions so you can be flexible. I, yeah, there's not really a lot of options for lyricists. <laughs> so uh, in terms of uh, being called on, you know, I think people want people that play instruments or they want people that can perform, uh, but there's not a big calling, I think, uh, for just a lyricist. Mm -hmm. So uh, I thought it was in my best interest to be flexible and learn how to do it from every different way. The craft uh, one of the things that when you and I had met when I, I, I had been involved in a musical theater workshop in L.A., mm -hmm. and that taught me a lot. We, we did what's called at the end of the year a mini-musical, um, a 15-minute musical, and so you have such little time to develop it that uh, basically I had to write lyrics on some first, and the composer had to write melody on some first, and then we'd swap. Mm -hmm. swap. So I'd give him the lyric, he'd put the melody, and then he'd give me his melody, and I'd put a lyric to it. So that, in a way, was the beginning of my sort of training to be able to write to a melody. But for musical theater, you have to have a storyline that progresses. And you're right, if you're given a melody first, you might not have the room, lyrically, to progress that storyline. Right. So that could be a little challenging. Right, and, and I just wanted to chime in that we're both uh, friendly with uh, New Musicals, Inc., formerly Academy of New Musical Theater, but now called New Musicals, Inc., and uh, and they're for the audience's sake, they're a great organization. If you want to write uh, new musicals, to at least um, uh, check them out in Los Angeles, New Musicals Inc. Um, uh, when you get an idea for a new song, does it just hit you out of the blue, or how do you get to whatever your new ideas are? It depends on the circumstance. If I'm, let's say, in a workshop, sometimes there'll be an assignment. Okay, write a Christmas song or write a song, or the instructor will pull something out of the headlines. Um, write a song about diversity, write a song about Me Too, um, or uh, um, this movie that just came out doesn't have any music in it. If you had to write a closing credits song, what would the song be? Huh. Um, to teach you how to not, put, not write specifically what the movie already said, but something relating to it. Um, so... In those instances, that's why I do like to continue taking workshops, because it gives you ideas of what to write about that I wouldn't normally just start writing about. Mm -hmm. um, when those aren't in session, um, I, if I'm given a melody, uh, I, was, I was given a melody by Brian Bell for a song that didn't uh, make the Weezer album. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know who he was, and I'd never heard of Weezer. I later <laughs> found this out. That's that's a really cool thing that happened for you then because it's, it it happened it, even though you weren't looking for it it happened in an organic way. Yes, and, very and, much. So. And those are usually I think those usually turn out to be the best kinds of ways to go about writing when it feels organic when it just is natural. Yeah, and that's hard to come by because yes. if you're not writing for a specific person or an artist. Uh, that you can maybe do some research on or see what songs they've sung and maybe try to do something a little different uh, or know about their life story. You're not, you know, if I wrote about somebody, you know, happily married with kids and somebody single, they're not going to sing the song. So sometimes you, you need to, if you can, if you're writing for a bigger artist or you have an idea of something you'd want to pitch to a bigger artist that could maybe work for other people, you might try to stay away from if somebody's going through a divorce, you don't want to write about a happy, you know, <laughs> being in love. So you know, or you might write it, but maybe they won't sing it. Mm -hmm. And and, and uh, let's talk about collaboration for a moment, because clearly you are are not a composer. You always are collaborating with somebody. Mm -hmm. And 
what is it about collaboration that, uh, for you, makes it work? Can you can you identify that? You know, that's like asking what makes uh, a date work uh-huh. um, when you're looking for a, a husband or wife. Yes, um, it's a it's a very organic thing that um, I don't have a, a, a verbal answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, it either feels right and it goes along right, uh, or it ultimately it's not a good match. It's like dating. And um, when you find a, a good collaborator that works well with you creatively, um, and also I've learned it's important to, for them to work well with you on a business level as well, uh, that's t- hard to find. It's because you you might you might marry somebody who would make a you know a great husband but not necessarily be a great father, you know. And so if you're writing with somebody that's really creative, um, but they just don't want to don't want to know, don't care to know, right. or just are not good at the business end of things, that's not necessarily a good partner. Well, there's no question that a good collaboration is like a good marriage or relationship, and uh, it has a lot of the ups and downs and, and quirks to it. When you are starting to work on a piece of music or a lyric, um, do you have a regular routine that you use in developing it, or does everything come differently? Everything kind of comes differently because it depends on the circumstance. Like I said, if I'm just sitting down to write a lyric for me, uh, hoping to get it out there one day and create a demo and find a composer that will put a good melody to it, um, and, I, and I'm only focusing on the lyric and the quality of the lyric. Um, I tend to rewrite a lot, and I don't put pressure on myself for a deadline. I just want to make sure it's great. And sometimes it could be, you know, quite a while until I finish it, and to my satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it comes quickly, and I have a great chorus, but then it takes me a while to build the storyline around it. <laughs> um, so every time. It's, it's different. I try to, when I'm not in writing mode, because I do take writing breaks in between, um, I do try to at least keep my ears open and my eyes open, and if I hear a great phrase or sometimes I'm speaking to a friend and something comes out of my mouth and he'll say, oh, that's a good line, and I'll jot it down. But I'm not listening for it. He's listening for it because he's also a songwriter. And he makes me crazy because every time we have a conversation, that happens ten times in the conversation. And I just want to talk. I'm not looking to write a lyric in that conversation. So uh, it's funny that uh, I tend to sometimes talk lyrically without knowing it. Do you uh, do you keep a, a notebook or something like that by your with you so that oh, if yeah. you get an idea, you write it down? Yes, I, I keep many notebooks, um, and I probably should create some kind of I don't know thing online on so that I have it you know typed out in a in something, some kind of document, but I find it easier to look back at my notebooks and look at the handwriting rather than just a bunch of lines on a page that I might print out. Um, but if I'm writing and I'm not home, then I don't have those books with me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the only thing about that. Do you, do you, um, when, when you're out and about, do you have some kind of a small pad with you? Oh, well, I put it on my iPhone usually. Got it. And you... I'll jot it down into an email and then I'll put, just write lines in the subject matter and and then eventually enough lines will be written down, and I'll send myself the email. And then I'll transfer it to the notebook. I, 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 I once, feel like putting it in that notebook. I, I once met a, uh, a fellow who we got to talking, and he had, there were, he had some business interaction with Bob Dylan. And wow. he, he went to meet with Bob Dylan at his house. And uh, during the conversation, Bob Dylan literally spaced out and wandered away in the middle of a conversation to go jot down ideas that hit him. So wow. so I guess we're, when the muse strikes, you better do something to record yes, it. Yes, because you won't remember it. You won't and remember it. so many it. times you, I'll wake up in, in the middle of the night or uh, in the, early in the morning and I'll have a great line and then I'm like, I'll remember it later. And you do not remember <laughs> no. it. You have to write it down. No, I've gotten very good at uh, jotting notes on a pad of paper in the dark in the middle of the night. I've gotten good at it. Because I'll wake up and I'll have an idea and I'll just, I'm not going to turn the light on, but I'll jot it right. down. And I've gotten good. And every once in a while I do that and I have no idea what I've written. Oh, well, that's why if you do it onto a phone, although the blue light of the phone will keep you awake. Yeah, that's um, right. Then, uh, then at least it's on there. Uh, that happens, though, too. That ha- I, when I, move, I moved about seven years ago from, from down the block and uh, when I was packing up my stuff, I found so many scraps of paper, and I put them all into a box saying, well, you know, when I move, I'll, 
I'll take them all out and I'll jot them down. And I opened the box when I moved, and I'm like, these are these are very good. Why did I think they were worth writing down? Um, so you I were, still have some scraps of paper. You were that. inspired at that moment, right? But now it's not so inspiring anymore. Or, or it could have been an idea. A lot of times when I'm in the middle of writing something, or if I'm writing something with an artist and I have the melody in my head already, mm-hmm. I wake up in the middle of the night and um, that melody is playing in my head. My brain is absolutely working when I'm sleeping, when I've got that melody. Mm-hmm. More so than when I'm just right working on a lyric. When I have that melody and, I have to, and I'm writing to a melody and I have to get the melody ingrained in my DNA so that I can come up with the words that will work for the melody, um, that thing is is drilling into my brain cells in the middle of the night. I wake up and I hear myself working on it. Well, you're 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 starting to hear it you're starting to hear words in rhythm and and right. at a certain syncopation and beat. And and so that's ha- pounding into your brain at that point. Right. You know. But uh, I don't know it until I wake up in the middle of the night and realize what's happening. So okay, so when you do, do you do anything to trigger inspirations? Where do you, in other words, where do you find your song ideas, or do you, do you do you work at getting ideas? Yeah, I do. That's why I, I don't I don't write lyrically every single day, and I take some breaks, um, sometimes for a few months. But in the course of those months, I am coming up with ideas. I'm jotting down lines. I you know if I come up with something that I'm like that that would be a good title. You know, I'll put a star next to it. Um, like I said, when when Brian Bell gave me that melody, and I always had this idea to write this song uh this lyric this line as a title it fit his melody Mm -hmm. Uh, if it didn't then i would have written a different song but but there are certain uh phrases that i come up with that i think that would be a good song title i don't know what the story is going to say and i might not ever get to write it but i'll jot it down and i'll think that's a good title do you know i i i know you must seek hooks lyrical hooks right do you know a hook when you hear it when I'm trying to come up with one, or when I hear it on the radio. Either way, well, on the radio, it's pretty obvious. It should there, should yeah. be if you're if you're any kind of person who's been around lyric writing for a while, a hook is pretty easy to figure out. But uh, I'm talking about when you're looking for a hook, or or it just comes to you. Do you know when a line comes into your head, that's a great hook? Can you can you can you tell? I can I can think it might be one, but whether or not when I sit down to write it, it will work all the way through for a complete song and uh, keep making sense every time we get to it mm-hmm. and, uh, might take me a while or might not work or it might work. So what I'm, um, I'm gathering from you, which is interesting, is that you're, you're both easily inspired, but you really work hard at this. It's not something that yes. just, it just breezes through your day. It's hard work. You know, it's funny. I hear, uh, you hear all the time musicians when they're or songwriters or artists when they're in talk shows, they say, oh, I wrote that in 10 minutes. Uh-huh. And, you know, and it's funny, even my, uh, even Barry Manilow, uh, the song Copacabana, which is his biggest hit, he'll, he said, oh, yeah, I wrote that in 15 minutes. But he will then say, my, the lyricist did not write that in 15 minutes. <laughs> they gave me a melody that was, I mean, they gave me a lyric that was completely finished, and so I was able to write the melody in 15 minutes because it was written, you know, in a way that uh, a, a melody person could easily put a melody to it. Um, sometimes some people write a lot of words, and when you have a lot of words, that doesn't give a composer a lot of room to do anything other than put a note on those words, right. as opposed to uh, having some breathing room where a singer can do something or emote or something. And um, so that's the difference, I think, uh, when people are writing poetry versus a lyric. The lyric can't be too dense because then it will just be a lot of words. Although maybe in rap and hip-hop, it can be. It should be, I guess. But Not all, you know. not, not in every song, but certainly lots no, of rap or hip-hop is that there's way. There's a lot of words, more words in those. Um, but And then one time I was working with John Grady, and he, uh, he started the song, and he gave me the melody, and I was terrified to start on this song. It came out great. But it took quite a while because as soon as I heard it, I loved the melody. But there was so many, I could hear there's so many words. There were going to be too, there was going to be so many words because there were so many notes where the words were going to go. And um, it took me a while to kind of embrace that. But when I first heard it, I loved the song, and I thought, oh, how am I going to make a story of that? There's just so many words. We, we should... usually would be a luxury because as a lyricist, you're always constricted. That you know, if you're writing to a melody that 
you may need eight words, and it only gives you room for three. Right, right. And um, and you have to do an internal rhyme, and you know um, those are tough to write, but when they're very satisfying when when it's finished and it comes out well. We we should uh, fill the audience in. Our young audience will not have any idea who Don Grady was, the late okay. Don Grady, who was. Uh, who we both, you knew him better than I did, but I certainly had spent a little time around Don. Um, Don Grady was um, most famous for having been one of the three sons on My Three Sons with Fred McMurray back in the 60s. But he was also a very fine songwriter, correct? Yes, and he was also an original Mouseketeer with an Epstein. Oh, that's right. He wa- that's correct. He was an original Mouseketeer. So he, he, was, he was actually a celebrity, um, although by the time you started to work with him, um, he was still a celebrity, but not not in that big league of celebrity, correct? Yeah, he was a more nostalgic uh, kind of a celebrity mm-hmm. with the Musketeers and things like that, and my three sons. And um, but uh, he always wanted to be an, uh, an artist and write songs, and he uh, he was doing that even on my three sons. A lot of songs that Robbie, his character, uh, would sing and play guitar and and. Uh, have a band, and there would be all kinds of different shows where he wrote those songs. Is that right? uh, After he left, he released an album. I think it was like 1974 or something like that. And then he went on to become a composer for film and TV. And around the time I had met him, he uh, was writing with Marty, writing a lot of songs for Disney. And when that was sort of slowing down, he, on his own, without telling anybody, decided that he wanted to do um, a jazz album of himself, uh, as an artist again, and he was just quietly on his own working on these songs, and at the time I was helping him build a website, and um, he would send me some of his, his songs and ask me for lyrical feedback, and uh, after a while I would be rewriting this or suggesting that, and so he gave me credit on, on some of the songs, and then we went on to write a couple more together, mm. and um, so that was one way, you know, <laughs> you end up writing with an artist, um, but uh, he... That was the first album that he did since 1974. Well, there, there is no one path to the way an artist uh, proceeds in a career. Um, they, all, they all have their own unique way, um, and as, as yours has been its own unique way. Um, do you, when you're thinking about uh, work, do you think about a certain, do you keep a certain audience in your mind? Do you write for an audience? It depends audience? on what I'm, what the, what the purpose of the song is. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if I'm writing for the country market, um, if I'm writing for a dance song, uh, yeah, those have, you know, those have audiences that uh, like specific things. And you know, if you listen to what's number one in those genres, you can get an idea what the public likes in those in those genres. Uh, if I'm writing for a specific artist, yes, I do keep the fans in mind. As a matter of fact, I believe that I'm not really writing for the artist. I believe I'm writing for the fans. And so it's interesting when I I speak to artists and I I explain that to them, that I'm not really writing for you. Um, You're really writing for them. Because if you want them to come to see you and you want them to buy your albums and and come back and keep listening, then they're the ones that have to be satisfied. Mm So... um, as a lyricist, I walk a fine line in that sense between making sure the art, the fans uh, want to hear something like that and making sure the artist just wants to say something like that. Right. And and, and so you're... Well, do you ever um, think of a song lyric and start working on it and there's nothing attached to it? No artist, no other uh, composer? Oh, yeah, nothing all the time. And so, Usually so, when I'm taking a workshop, just to keep my lyrical chops go, you know, going. Right. And sometimes I'll use parts of that, those songs in songs that I am writing for projects. So there's no wasted writing. Even if I'm writing something just to you know, keep my brain lubricate, lubricated you know, to, uh, lyrically um, so that I don't you know, atrophy uh, after not writing for a while, um, I'm always writing something, that, that's, and I will use that at some project at some point. That is a, a spectacularly valuable bit of information you just gave, that there is no wasted writing. It's all, it all tr- contributes in some way, and you don't get better by not writing. You get better by writing more and more, no matter whether it works or not. Um, and, and that's and that's just a fact. Certain, um, it's a muscle. You have to keep exercising it one right. way or another. Um, uh, okay, so I'm going to ask you a tough question that I ask a lot of artists on this show, 
and sometimes I get a I get you know very useful answers, and sometimes I don't. And we'll see how you do with it. Um, okay. For you, what makes a good song good? It's for t- me, t- as question. a listener or as a writer. Either way, what what when you're when you hear a song that's good, what makes it good for you? When you're writing with someone or you're writing lyrics, what for you makes it good? What, what, in other words, you, it's pretty easy to identify, I think, when something isn't good. I think it's easy right. to figure out something doesn't work. I think it's a lot harder to identify what makes something good. Can, do you know in your mind's eye what does? Are you speaking lyrically or musically or the whole song? All, all of the above, any and all of the above, however you want to come at it. I really, there's only one answer for me for that, and that is if it makes me feel something. Okay, good. And... So that could be feeling, you know, uh, sorrow in the event of a sad song. That, that could be feeling happy in the event of a happy song. Um, if I feel something uh, or, and or it moves me physically and emotionally, it's a good song. M- music is a, an, an interesting and odd thing, is it not? Music without words attached to it can move you in a purely emotional way. There's no intellect to it at all. It's pure emotion. And then you put words onto a song, and it will still move you emotionally, but the words can take it to a slightly different place or maybe a, right. maybe a largely different place. Um, and so the, the role of, of lyrics is very important, but not critical to finding the emotion of a song, though usually it does. Um Songwriting in particular, lyric writing songs, music, all of that, is particularly an emotional exercise, is it not? Yes. That's why I tend to do my best writing uh, late, very late in the middle of the night when the rest <laughs> of the world is asleep. <laughs> and why is that? What is it about the middle of the night? I, well, there's two things. One, I think growing up I've always been more alert um, Later in the day, uh, that goes for my TV jobs. That goes for uh, when I was a student. I used to fall asleep with books <laughs> on my chest in sixth grade. Um, I just am much more alert at night. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't enjoy being awake in the morning in the early <laughs> part of the day. It makes it for a very long day because I'm looking forward to the nighttime. But when I'm sitting and writing and I'm in writing mode, um, I... I could sit here from 9 in the morning until 2 in the morning and write and write and write, but the good stuff won't come until midnight, let's say. Uh, Now, if I started at midnight, I wouldn't have been digging through the dirt to get to the diamonds for those Mm -hmm. earlier hours that Mm -hmm. I would have spent earlier. So I can't just start late at night. I do have to start you know, hours before until some of the good stuff comes. And then sometimes I'm not thinking about something and something good comes. So it's hard to pinpoint one process. It comes in all different ways. Well, sure. I, I would expect it to be that way, but sometimes there's a pattern to it and you see things that are more one than the other. And you're saying later in the day for you is better. Uh, yeah. uh, do, do you work better when you're tired? Well, I'm not tired later in the day. I see. You get, you get, um, ener- I get energized. energized later in the day. Got it. So, no, I don't work well when I'm tired. I'm tired in the morning, <laughs> and uh, that's why I don't think I'm all that creative in the early part of the day. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I had won this songwriting uh, competition um, down in Nashville a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and um, the prize was it was judged by a number one hit writer, and he selected out of 500 songs, he selected a winner, and the prize was to go to Nashville and to write a song right. with a hit writer. Um, and that was very, very exciting, and I won. He selected my song out of hundreds of songs to do a co-write with him. Um, and so there's a two-hour time difference in Nashville. So a few months later, I flew down to Nashville, and uh, I flew down a week early uh, because I wanted to try to get used to the time zone a little bit. And, you know, in Nashville, they write at 10 a.m., 1 p.m. They write like two, three writing sessions a day. And so uh, he wanted to schedule the writing session for 10 a.m. I said, you know, um, I'm more of a night owl, and I'm coming from L.A. with the time difference, so a little bit later would be better if you can accommodate that. And he goes, sure, how's 11.30? <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm not going to push it later than that. So I said, great. So the night, so I'm all set. I fly to Nashville. I still can't get used to the time difference because I just 
stayed on L.A. time. And the night before the writing session, he texts me and he says, uh, just confirming 11 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I can't tell this pro writer, oh, sorry, I need an extra 30 minutes of sleep. So I said, sure, see you then. And, you know, I lost out on that half hour. But he didn't originally schedule it for 11.30. <laughs> but that pained me. In a way, it wouldn't pain anybody else. And did He wrote two great songs in a very short period of time. Well, so maybe I am creative in the morning. I don't know. There you go. Do you think you work better when you work fast? It depends on if I'm writing with somebody. If I'm writing with a Nashville pro who is so trained in writing quickly and well, then, yes, that ups my game. Um, if I'm by myself at 2 in the morning at, at home, um, then I don't necessarily feel that I'm going to write fast. It's what comes out comes out. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, uh, I think one of the lessons we're taking away from today's show is that there is no one way to do this for you, that there is a, there's no clear pattern other than you prefer to work a little later, you like to think your way through it as opposed to just having it jam out, although that happens too. Right. Um, uh, from this entire um, career that you've had up till now of, of writing songs, is there anything from the process up till now that you thought works really, really well that you want to always repeat? The only thing that I... I standard I hold myself to is, is, is greatness, and that's a very tough uh, level to reach. Yes, it um, is. <laughs> but it's what I aspire to because, uh, like I said, I'm competing with all these professional writers who have, you know, more connections and things like that, and um, the only thing I think in general in anything in life that will cut through that, that will cut through, you know, uh, being a female in an all-male world, mm-hmm. let's say in sports, or whatever situation somebody finds themselves in, um, the only thing that will cut through that is something really great. And so that's what I aspire to do. Uh, it's tough to reach, and um, it makes for a lot of rewriting, and a lot of rewriting very, very good lines that might have been good enough. But then you write a great line and think, oh, now I've got to go back and match that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had that in the song I've been working on for quite a while. My collaborator is very patient. Um, and he loved the lyric that I wrote. And um, then I came up with a really interesting first line, a new first line. And now I have to rewrite the lyric to match that really great first line. <laughs> and I don't know that I'm going to be able to because... It might not be, you know, that that line should be first. Maybe that line should come later so I can build to it. So the only standard I have is that if I'm going to um, spend money on a demo, it has to be as great as it can be, and it will have gone through a lot of feedback, and hopefully, you know, it won't only be my decision that ultimately says it's finished. Um, I'll give you an example. I was writing a song in my earlier uh, years of writing when I wasn't as confident in, in knowing what might be good. And um, it was a song that I wrote that was inspired by my brother um, after he passed away. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would bring the song once a year to a workshop and rewrite it, because each year I got a little better and I got a little better. And, um, and when, in Marty's workshop, he will read the lyric and then discuss the song with the class. And so he starts to read the lyric for like the eighth year in a row, however many years it was. And after the first verse and first chorus, he stopped, and he was extremely choked up. And I thought, I'm finished. (laughs) I'm finished. And what I didn't know was that he had just found out that a very dear friend of his who had created this, uh, you mentioned the songwriting scholarships um, from Concord Records and Barry Manilow that had won, um, he created those scholarships. He owned Concord Records, this guy, and he, um, Marty had just found out that the guy had cancer and Mm. uh, it wasn't looking good. So um, when I say a song has to make me feel or make someone else feel, that's how I know it worked. And in that moment, I knew the song was done. And it was. And it went on to win the John Lennon Award and uh, grand prizes. And uh, I still haven't gotten it recorded yet, but it's a great song. And I 
I hope it will get recorded one day. But uh, it went on to win several, several wow. uh, big awards, and that, um, because I knew I hit the heart that, that when, you, when that happened to him. You'd hit the heart and also punched them very hard in the gut. Yeah. And, and and when you do that, you probably are going to succeed wildly every time. Um, and, and you know. It, that's really what it is. We've talked about this already a little bit in the show, but it is. It's all about the heart and the and the gut, not the not the not the brain, the heart and right. the gut. Um, and that's when he when he said to me when he first met me, he said, "I knew you were smart, but I didn't know if you could get to the heart." Um, that was his first impression until you know I worked with him more and he saw that I could. Did you feel like at that moment you had um, sort of elevated into a different place? Like I said, all these years go by, and you still feel like you're sitting down and writing a song for the first time. <laughs> that blank page is a great equalizer. And to me personally, I never feel that I've quite reached there. Um, that's why I think that's what keeps me going and keeps striving to get better I, and to write a better song and I was gonna accomplish s- different things. I was going to say, Deborah, I actually hope for your sake that you never get to that place because that's what makes you continue to strive for greatness. Right. Because if you think you've arrived and you're now great, you're probably cooked. Well, where do you go after that? You always exactly. have to have, to have a, some kind of goal to improve. And, and that's the great secret of life, you know. You never really, it really is all a journey. And I wrote, the, I wrote a song called I've Already Won. Um, uh, it's, not a, it's not the destination that's the reason for the race. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I don't know that I knew that when I was writing it. Maybe I just <laughs> sounded good. I don't remember. But... It's certainly very true. Have, have you, you know? I know you've been a fan forever of Barry Manilow. Uh, have you had a chance to ever chat with him about songwriting? I haven't had a chance to chat with him about songwriting. I have met him uh, a couple of times. There were very quick uh, moments of meeting. And um, he had, I guess he and Concord Records had sponsored this scholarship for, uh, for Marty's class at UCLA. And uh, back, back then when I won it, and uh, I found myself in a situation where I had gone to see him in uh, Palm Springs. It was an AIDS benefit, and they forgot to tell me what table I was at, so I had to go back to the entrance of this golf course in the middle of the cocktail hour to find out what table I was at, and I hear clicking noises, and I turn around, and Barry was entering. Now, everybody else was already a mile into the golf course at their cocktail hour, but I had to go back to the entrance, and so now I couldn't make my way back to the um, co- to the cocktail hour because he and his entourage were now walking down the pathway. Right. And, and there was a photographer walking in front of them uh, taking pictures as they walked. And so I was going to be in the background if I was on that path. So I had to kind of go off the path and just wait until they, they passed. And somehow uh, the photographer ended up calling me into the photo. Uh, he later on says when I asked him why he did that, he says, I didn't. Barry motioned me to tell you to come into the photo. I don't know why that happened, but I ended up taking this photo with Barry. But as I quickly went to shake his hand, I just said, thank you for the scholarship. And um, he kind of didn't really know what I was talking about until I went into detail. And I just said, you know, Concord Records and, you know, created a scholarship under your name. And I won it. And it's helping me be a better songwriter. Mm. So that was a very, very, very quick thing that uh, I remember saying, but he probably wouldn't. Well, but that was pretty. It's pretty exciting, though. Yeah, pe- people like uh, Barry Manilow, I assume, meet so many people in their lives. It's very hard to yeah. keep them all straight. Um, what do you do uh, to stay on target and on deadline? Do you have any particular tricks? Stay awake as long as, long <laughs> as I can and write as much as I can uh, until I pass out. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when there's a deadline, I don't love deadlines. Um, I, I learned to write to them, um, and I've written pretty well when I've done that. But, you know, I prefer to take my time and make sure that everything is perfect. And you don't always have time when you're writing under deadline. That's why I do both. You know, it's like I'll take on projects, but I'll also do writing on the side that's, that's just for me mm-hmm. um, until I reveal it and then try to get it out there. So, so in uh, other words, to stay on target and deadline for you when you're on a deadline is just nose to the grindstone. Yeah, I mean, what other choice is there? You have a certain limited time to do something, and uh, and I work up until the last second until I feel I've done everything I can do within that time frame. Uh, 
does that do you ever do something like that and you walk away and you think I, I I didn't get there I didn't get to what I wanted to do I don't not that not that I can recall I mean that might have happened that's but, good um, but you know I I do what I you know in that if I really have to call out the big guns I'll <laughs> I'll send something to Marty and I'll say can you please take a look at this before I finalize it right uh, just because I need a second pair of fresh eyes and I'm too close to it right and he's always been very accommodating about that so. I will say that um, that pretty much any time an artist is going to record a song of mine, uh, Marty has reviewed it, unbeknownst nice. to the artist. Wow, that that's a yeah. that's a nice backup plan. Yeah, he's the best. <laughs> uh, he's, he's been uh, very crucial in my in my writing, and I, you know, when I wanted to be a TV producer as a female growing up in Long Island years ago, there weren't very many of them, and. And there weren't many opportunities anyway, you know, with three networks. Um, and I kind of had to do a lot of, you know, proving people right, proving myself right and proving people wrong who didn't believe that I could do it. And in this case, he believed in me so much that I came at it from a different way. I had to prove him right rather than proving people wrong. Like, I'll show you, I'll become a producer. Well, when it comes to being a songwriter, um, I wanted to prove him right for, you know, investing all that time and energy of course. in helping me be a better writer. And that's a scarier thing. Because when somebody believes in you and you don't want to let them down, it's much scarier than if the person didn't believe you in, in you in the first place and you didn't make it, you didn't lose anything. But if somebody believes in you and you disappoint them uh, by not doing everything you can to get there... But, that to me was but not what but what a what a wonderful thing you have to uh, to have that as your as to pushing you as to inspiring you that's some people don't have that i think that's a really great thing yeah oh i'm very lucky i mean i i would not in any way shape or form be a songwriter be a lyricist be involved in music if not for marty mm -hmm. well, i just wouldn't it wouldn't even have entered my mind that that's a um you know, I think that that's a grand thing that you have that in your life. No, again, not everybody has something like that, and that, that's very helpful for you. So you are lucky. Um, t tell us about your workspace. Are, do you have a specific workspace you always work in? Um, when I lived in my last place, um, my workspace was um, I had a desk that was from a child's store from my very first apartment in New York City, which was a studio. So you had no room for anything. Um, and that was a very, very tiny desk. And then, you know, translate that to many years later, uh, being in a, in a two-bedroom, which there was more room, but I just kept moving my furniture with me. And so my desk was always this little small kid's desk that I got at this children's store. And, um, and so I had a very, very little space on that desk between the computer and the printer and the and stuff, I had like two inches to work from, and I was very uh, squished. Um, and then about seven years ago, I moved uh, down the block and into a bigger place, and I finally got rid of the desk, and uh, I bought a real adult desk, a really beautiful desk that I don't want to touch because um, I don't want to ruin the desk. <laughs> so I work at my dining room table because it's, I have more room in, the, in the, the dining room and the living room are one big room, so I have the TV there, and it's just a bigger space as opposed to the little squished space I was in the little corner in my old little child's desk. Um, but I might at some point get over to that other desk. I just have more room on the dining room table. <laughs> is there anything... So that's my workspace. Is there anything that you need to have around you for inspiration? Is there anything in your workspace that you, you know, is sitting there that's always facing you or something you need? Um, not in terms of anything superstitious. Mm -hmm. I have my laptop and I have my notebooks that I've jotted ideas down to. And if I'm starting something from scratch, like after I haven't written for a while, I'll go through the books. I'll go look through my books and see if there's a title or an idea that jumps out at me. Uh, and then I'll start with that. Um, but other than those, I don't really have anything that I need. Well, that's great. Um, we have been talking for close to an hour, and um, wow. so we're coming toward the end of uh, today's story beat. And um, I'm, we've been talking with the, the fabulous lyricist Deborah Gusson. Uh, Deborah, I'm wondering, um, you've spent time in the industry in different phases of the industry, um, and you've clearly met a lot of people and done a lot of different things. 
Do you happen to have any kind of a funny, oddball, quirky, offbeat, weird, any kind of strange, um, you know, interesting story that you can share with us? Um, oh, gosh, I probably do. Um, I, I was thinking back to when you say oddball, quirky, I'm thinking back to my very early career in TV, my first job in TV was working at ABC Sports, mm-hmm. and uh, I had aspired you know, to be a producer, and that was my first gig, and what I used to do is go to work on some sporting events on the weekends. I would pay my way to work on a football game or a, go- a golf event or right. the U.S. Open, or, um, and eventually my boss, who was a producer on Wide World of Sports, was promoted to uh, coordinating producer of ABC's uh, Wide World of Sports. Um, he was just a, produ- a regular producer in the sports department, and then he was running the show. Not Rune Arledge. Uh, uh, under Rune. I think Rune had been gone by then, but I think he, when he started out, Rune was still there. Got it. Um, anyway, one of these shows he was producing was the New York City Marathon, which was a three-hour telecast. And uh, that year, uh, I guess all the big runners were out they were injured or they weren't running or they were running somewhere else. And he had a three-hour telecast to, uh, to fill. And so it was decided that they would try to get some New York native celebrities uh, to, uh, to do a segment on so they could roll tape in, in between the moments of the race. And um, I had recommended being a long time, from the time I was a child, being a long time Barry Manilow fan. I said, well, what about Barry? You know, he's the epitome of Brooklyn. He's from Brooklyn. Um, and, uh, you know, my boss, it was all mostly men that I was working with, and, and my boss was like, no way. And, and so I badgered him, I guess, enough to, because uh, he already said no, so I had nothing to lose, at, to where he finally said, go do what you want, you know, and he didn't say no. So I said, oh, well, what do I do? And so I went home, and I took out an album, and I looked at it for his management company on the, on the back of the album, and right. I, I called, and I left a message thinking, nobody's going to call me back, you know? <laughs> and the next, or a few days later, I was on my way to Chicago to work a horse race called the Arlington Million, and I'm on the way out the door, and the phone rings, and I answer it, and it was his tour manager. And he said, you know, I'm meeting with Barry tomorrow, and I will present this idea to him. And I thought, oh, my God, you know? So, um... I go to Chicago, and oddly enough, there's a horse racing in the, in the race called Manila, M-A-N-I-L-A, which I thought was pretty close to Manila, so I thought maybe that's a good sign that it'll work out. So I put a bet on the horse, and the horse ended up winning, so I was really <laughs> uh, hoping that that would work. And long story short, um, after the guy met with Barry, they said they would do it. And what I didn't know at the time, because this was before the Internet and word got out, he was working on a new album, and... Uh, he was working on a new song called Brooklyn Blues. And I thought, well, how coincidental is that? Because the marathon, most of the marathon takes place in the borough of Brooklyn. And um, so long story short, they assign a director to go to L.A. to shoot this video with Barry singing Brooklyn Blues. And I took some vacation days and paid my way to L.A. because I wanted to, you know, see what happened. I had made this happen, and I thought, well, I really would love to, you know, see the shoot happening. So um, we get there, and we, we meet with him briefly the day before, check the location, and uh, um, that night, this, the shoot was the next day, and that night I get back to the hotel, and I get a message from the tour manager saying that apparently the song was cut down uh, for time, and Barry hasn't heard it, and he, and he needed to sing it the next day, and he needed to hear how it was cut down so he could sing it on the shoot. And I didn't know anything about this, but I had a visual memory of when we were leaving the location scout, uh, the director putting an Ampex audio tape box in his briefcase. And I'm thinking, maybe that's what that was. I didn't know. So I left a note on the director's door that night saying, you know, Barry needs to hear this. It's now 11 o'clock at night, and I didn't know what the director was, but I left a note saying Barry really needs to hear this. The manager called... um, and he needs to hear how you cut the song down so he could do the recording the next day. And, and I don't know. I might have put a little bit of, like, you know, how could you treat Barry this way into the letter. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. I don't remember. Right. But I know I was really upset and nervous as to what was going to happen. And so the next morning I get a phone call from my boss back in from New York. And uh, he says to me, um, 
uh, you have a choice. You can uh, either go to the World Series in two weeks, which I was, I was planning to do, or you can um, stay in L.A. And so he was basically making me choose between going to the Barry shoot um, and going to the World Series. Right. And I'm thinking, well, for me, it was a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, I, even though I was not involved in music and I still had aspirations to be a producer, um, I was already in L.A. I paid my way there. Um, I didn't really quite understand at the time what was happening. But then I get to the shoot, and the director says, um, you're not to say a word or you will leave the room. So he, he might have taken some offense to me leaving a note on his door saying that Barry needed to hear the song. That's the only thing I can get from that. And I thought, okay. So I'm watching the whole thing set up, and he had two cameras, and one was on a wide shot of Barry at a keyboard, and the other monitor had a very tight shot of Barry's profile, which, you know, he used to get called out for having a large nose. Yeah. So I thought, but even if he didn't, I mean, the profile is not really the best shot of anybody. It just didn't look good. And I thought, well, I'm not allowed to say anything, otherwise the director's going to kick me out. So I had to sit there and watch Barry, like, you know, getting the shot set up. He couldn't see the monitor. And I don't know if he saw, like, a contorted look on my face or not, but he, all of a sudden he says to the director, hey, can you turn the monitor around so I can see the shot? And I thought, thank God, because I didn't want to have to say something and then not be there for the shoot. And um, he turns the monitor around and he goes, can you change that shot? <laughs> so um, they put it on a very nice, you know, front shot of his face and, uh, and it came out great. And uh, unbeknownst to me, this, you know, sort of just dream of me meeting my, you know, childhood idol, uh, it turned out that a few months later the album came out and that song was selected as the uh, first single. And so they used the video that we shot for the New York City Marathon. His management company bought it after it aired it on the marathon, which is a one-time telecast. And this, this song, the video, ended up uh, airing on MTV and VH1, and uh, it became his, uh, his single, and that was the video that they used to promote it. That's pretty cool. So. You, you, you saved Barry Manilow from having a bad shot. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. I hope good. so. <laughs> but uh, he did a great job, and uh, all was well. But I didn't really want to get, you know, taken out of the room just for saying something. No. And, you you, you, know. you, you prevailed just by being quiet, so that was fine. Yeah. Um, so last question of the show. Uh, do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip for those who are trying to um, make it into the business or, or they're sort of in the business and trying to get you know, to a higher level? Um, TV or songwriting? I Music. think songwriting is the better way to go or whatever tip you might have. Well, it depends on, you know, the music industry has really changed since I got into it. Sure and has. Uh, it's just, I, I guess it's always been difficult, but it depends on if you're an artist and you can sing and get your songs out there. If you're strictly a writer, a songwriter, that's another avenue. But I think if you're writing songs, um, the best piece of advice I could give to anybody, regardless of how, what their method is and what their, you know, their process is and how long it takes them and how much rewriting they do, be honest in the song. Make sure that lyric, if you're writing the lyric, um, has truth to it. Uh, that's the only way that other people are going to relate to it and that it will come from an authentic place is if it, it has truth to it. And, you know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't sit down and write a hip-hop song because that's not my truth. That's not where I, where I come from, and it's not my world. Um, I can write a country song, but I don't necessarily be writing about the tailgate because... I didn't grow up going to tailgates down, you know, down in Nashville or wherever. Right. Um, so write what's authentic to you, at least starting out that way, for people to, to know your truth. Um, I think that will, um, and even in co-writes and collaborations, that honesty and that truth will allow your co-writers to know you and to know what you can contribute and um, what you can contribute to their own writing that, that they don't necessarily have the expertise in. Um, so that would be my best advice is just come from a place of truth and, and work hard and keep going. I think that's, that the that's... Other, that's the other secret is just don't stop because eventually other people will stop and you'll, you know, hopefully make your way. Just don't stop. Just keep going and find different opportunities for yourself. Well, you certainly can't succeed if you're not trying. Um, and, and I, I think that that's the, your advice about truth is incredibly valuable because, um, you know, you can't, 
it, it can't be fake. It has to come right. from a real place. And I think that is that truth is true uh, for all forms of art, not just songwriting. Uh, I, I think that, right. that uh, great artists, whether they're painters or musicians or uh, actors or directors or writers uh, or whatever, um, have to come from a place of truth. I think that that's a very valuable piece of advice. So I thank you for saying that. And I thank you greatly for being on today's show, Deborah. This has been really spectacularly wonderful uh, information and advice for uh, people who are trying to get through their way into the business. Well, thank you. I appreciate I hope I said something that um, maybe can inspire somebody the way I've been inspired by people that I've listened to. And uh, that would be great, even if one person said, hey, I learned something, then it was worth the time. Uh, it's always nice speaking to you anyway. I think that it's uh, that there's way more than one piece in there. <laughs> I think there's okay. lots. So thank you great. again. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.